So we are here with uh, Liviu Arsene. He's the global cybersecurity researcher for Bitdefender. And Liviu, thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you for having me. Give us a little bit of uh, background on you, just a little bit about who you are, what you do, how long you've been at Bitdefender. Let's just get to know you a little bit. All right. So um, as you already said, I'm a global cybersecurity researcher for Bitdefender. I've been with the company for uh, the better part of the decade now. I'm close to uh, celebrating my 10-year uh, anniversary with Bitdefender. Um, my current role is actually uh, interfacing with uh, research uh, and investigation teams and do malware forensic analysis. So basically what I do is try to um, if you will, interpret the really technical language and the really detailed uh, researched uh, investigations that comes from our forensics teams and try to present them in a way that even our marketing guys can understand what to do with them. <laughs> so if you, you even look a guy at, like me, right? <laughs> I, 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 I was kind of, uh, um, I'm kind of like an interface between uh, these two, two branches, two worlds. So this is kind of like my main focus, uh, my main focus right now. And so it's a pretty boring space right now, right? Not a lot going on in that area. Not a lot of things happening. I, I imagine. What are you talking about? No, that is not true. <laughs> yeah, I imagine every day is is a firefight, right? Is that in in cybersecurity? Exactly. So there, because you know nobody ever sleeps. You know, stay stay foolish, stay hungry, stay awake, and pretty much everybody stays awake all the time. Uh, both security researchers and the bad guys. And I have to say that sometimes the bad guys uh, give us a run for their money. Uh, you know, they, uh, they are, have begun to be just as skilled, as knowledgeable, and as, uh, if you will, organized, if you will, as, uh, you know, security companies or security teams. They, they begun to act as outsourcing companies. But, you know, if you go to the dark web, for example, you can just contract these guys, give them the technical specification, uh, the brief of what you want to do and how you want it to be done, and they will get it done for you for the right price, of course. Sure. Sure. We're, we're keeping them pl plenty, uh, plenty busy with an election coming up here in the U.S. And it seems like everybody wants to have be a player in that, whether it's legitimate or uh, or or not. And so uh, we'll get we'll talk a little bit more about that, your cybersecurity and some more of that here a little bit later. We we brought you on uh, initially to talk a little bit about because there's two appliances. I sh that shouldn't say it that way. There's one appliance and one service that you guys have right. that that I've been using for a long time. Um, you know, uh, it, on Home Gadget Geeks, we often try to talk about, or I try to be, bring some of these complicated uh, projects or complicated services down for the average guy, right? That's kind of the whole idea of what we do. And I've always, we've been using PFSense and, and some of those kind of uh, more robust uh, internet filtering and, and, you know, kind of services. A couple years ago, four or five years ago, I came across the Bitdefender box and uh, was a box, per, you know, I was a box one user mm. uh, that came out. And then a couple. Yeah, exactly. The little one, the, the, the small box. And then um, uh, kind of redesigned and re-engineered uh, the box two came out a couple years ago. And, and I want to th those box you purchase. Mm. It's a router. Uh, and so it's a Wi-Fi router. It, it kind of takes it, it will will serve its purpose as. Uh, serving the whole home as far as uh, giving out IP addresses and, and guarding the home, so to speak. Um, uh, so, so I've had that for a couple of years. Can you talk a little bit about the the appliance? What you know from from that perspective, and wh why did Bitdefender kind of try to get into that space to actually be on hardware to help individuals with kind of protecting their home? 
That is an excellent question. You know, I was planning to do a little bit of history 101 on the Bitdefender box. <laughs> so um, it all started about, um, if I remember correctly, about five years ago. So it was 2015 when we had that little box that you, know, you mentioned, like the little coaster. Uh, that was interesting to see because uh, at the time, um, you know, people were talking a lot about IoTs, but they weren't really aware that IOTs will have such huge market penetration that we will see connected devices, so many connected devices in our homes in the next couple of years. So we thought maybe we could, you know, get ahead of that problem, you know, the problem that IOT devices connected to the internet are inherently insecure and that nobody was actually building any security capabilities into these by coming up with this uh, Bitdefender, uh, Bitdefender box, the V1, as we call it. Uh, that was um, ahead of its game. We learned a lot from it, uh, the, especially the fact that, you know, not a lot of people were aware that they need such a thing. But in the next couple of years, as it turns out, you know, you, you simply just cannot walk into a, an appliance store without getting something that's connected to the Internet, whether it's a TV, whether it's a, a you know, smart vacuum cleaner, cleaner or even, you know, a food dispenser for your pet. Pretty much everything's connected uh, to the Internet these days. And that's how we, you know, it was a natural transition from the V1 to the box V2, which... Um, Brings a lot of muscle uh, compared to the V1. For example, it's uh, it's it, uh, it's now capable to support a gigabit connection. It has a, a little bit more uh, more power in terms of processing power. I, I think it has a Cortex A9 processor. Uh, it's a dual core processor. It also has um, a little bit more RAM. It has um, it has support for uh, I think it was AC uh, Wi-Fi. So it you know it supports. It allows you to even do uh, 4K streaming. So if you want to do that in your home and still download some applications, that's fine. That, that's okay. You can do that. So it has all that um, MoMimo uh, applications. So it's it's pretty it's pretty intense in terms of hardware. Just as you mentioned, you can use it as a standalone or Wi-Fi router if you want to. So that's the natural evolution of how uh, we went from the V1 to the V2. And now, if you take a look at stats, uh, you'll see that they're about if I'm not mistaken, 35 billion IoT devices connected to the internet. And um, I remember recently looking at some of our um, telemetry for honeypots because we have these, uh, we call them deceptive networks, where we try to emulate most of these um, protocols for IoT devices. Oh, there we go. And um, we, we found out that everything that we exposed online gets uh, pretty much hacked in about five to 15 minutes. So we've, we've got about 8,000 uh, SSH sessions, I think uh, within 24 hours and about, um, I, if I'm not mistaken, 5,000 Telnet sessions, constantly knocking it at that deceptive network every 24 hours. So it means that you know these guys are constantly prob probing for IOTs, the IOT devices to, to remotely uh, control. And uh, I was asked at some point, okay, so what's the point? Okay, you, you wanted, uh, tap into my uh, pet's food dispenser or, you know, my thermostat. Well, what's the deal with that? I mean, you can't use that to do anything. Well, actually, you can. Um, there are services, uh, the bad guys out there, that rent out huge botnets. Um, and they rent them out, and whoever uh, gets access to them can do denial-of-service attacks on, let's say, an online retailer. So, for instance, let's say it's Black Friday or it's some, it's the holiday season, and uh, you do, you're expecting a lot of traffic, a lot of customers to your websites. Now, these guys use this, this huge army of compromised IoT devices to do a denial of service on your website. And then they call you up and say, hey, how much customers you're, how much business you're losing because of this one hour denial of service attack? Wouldn't you like 
to give us the money so that we can take down the botnet off your website and then you can you know start making profit again so this uh, it's a it's an extortion scheme and it's pretty much fueled by uh, vulnerable iot devices that unfortunately we plug and play just in our uh, wi-fi networks so if i'm if, if i'm if i have a box and i'm uh, attaching so I, I you know i put in some switches or i put in some some remote light uh, sensors that do some things for me and I attach those to the Bitdefender box. What's the, what layer in there is making sure that those aren't that those are being protected as well? So yeah, uh, we have something that's um, that works at the network layer. It's kind of like a network attack defense thing. Uh, basically, it scans uh, for packets, data packets that contain headers, uh, which tell the device, the box, what type of IoT. Uh, appliance you've connected to the Wi-Fi. And from that, we can say, okay, so you've got a, um, a new smart plug, for example. Um, what, type of the, what type of a device is it? What's the manufacturer? Is there a new firmware update that you should be installing because maybe it's not updated? Um, it also does, um, again, from a network standpoint, it tries to block any incoming brute forcing attacks on anything that's exposed online, either through uh, Telnet or SSH, or even guys that just do port knocking to see what, what port tries to tries to listen, uh, tries to communicate uh, to the internet. So it, it kind of works like a, an IDS IPS solution, uh, except it's in your home. So anything that's connected to it, it will somehow be some, most of the time be protected by these guys trying to probe your network. Christian, we as a community have spent a bunch of time. I think PSSense is probably the most common uh, kind of router protection type we've done. As you think, and that that is an endless amount of options. When I, you know, as as a home user, how do you think, Christian? How important is it to to make this simpler? And Bitdefender has made this a pretty. I mean, I've set it up, so it's a pretty easy setup to go in there. How, from your from your perspective, how important is it to make that part easier? And and for the average user, is this enough? Definitely. I mean, one of the big limitations or drawbacks of a PFSense solution is you need to have some type of IT background to deploy it and deploy it correctly. And while there are plugins and other mechanisms for setting up intrusion detection prevention and providing a security posture at the perimeter of your home network, it's not a drop and go type of solution. Um, whereas at least with the bit Defender offering, um, it really is getting down to that consumer level of like, here's the mobile device app. You can see what's going on. Like, you're not going to have that level of visibility at the PFSense layer of solutions for the home. So it's for me, it's it kind of sets that boundary between technical enthusiast and average consumer looking for some of the same types of protections. Leave you the Bitdefender box comes with both a, an app and you can access it via the web. Actually, I like the the app a little bit better. It's a little, it has a little more function to it. Are you guys monitoring? Is my box getting smarter? I mean, are there things happening inside of that that I'm not aware of that are 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 protecting me on a daily basis, even while I sleep? Well, I'll tell you. I'll I'll let you in on a little secret. When you bought the box, you basically bought the entire Bitdefender technology stack. <laughs> so everything that we've developed in terms of technologies for the past uh, twenty years, is pretty much bundled into the box. Okay, it's not running on the box because you can't run on it, but it's cloud-based, and the box is constantly receiving updates. 
So everything that we do on the server side, on the cloud side, is immediately reflected into the capabilities of the box. Sure, we do uh, occasionally release firmware updates to you know fix potential vulnerabilities or you know increase performance of the box. But everything is, uh, is cloud-based. So you're basically getting access to the best telemetry in real time as soon as we find it. Um, now, uh, you said something a, a little earlier that you know, it, it makes it easier for users to, to, uh, to secure their devices. And that was the whole plan, actually, when we developed the box. Because um, whatever, you know, if you think about the, the reasoning when you buy a smart device, a smart, uh, you know, connected uh, smart IoT device, you don't usually think about it in the way that you would uh, when you buy a computer or when you buy a, a smartphone in the sense that you consider updating it every once in a while, you consider installing a security solution on it, you consider uh, changing your password to that device or stuff like that. You just, you know, you just wanted to plug it and play it and play with it. That's it. And um, uh, from my experience, I mean, from our experience, actually, we've tested tons of these uh, IoT devices for vulnerabilities. And sadly, sometimes when we found quite a few in these devices, whenever we tried to report them to the manufacturer, the manufacturer was long gone. Mm. So that means sometimes it happens that you buy one of these devices, you plug it into your network, and if we find a vulnerability or somebody else finds one, the chances chances are you're going to be stuck with a vulnerable device in your network that, you know, uh, there's a risk uh, that device might expose your entire infrastructure. Um, I think Bitdefender also has released like a, a standalone network scanner that you can run. Are you familiar with that? Yeah, yeah. We we have a client that you can install on your uh, laptop, basically, and uh, it scans your network to see whether you have devices connected to the internet, basically that share the same network, you know, the same D, uh, the same network, and whether or not those devices have patches that you haven't installed, for example. So whether or not there are patches available that you forgot to install or you didn't even know that you can install. And the funny, uh, another funny, uh, funny story is, um, at one point. We found a vulnerability, I believe, in a, a smart wall plug, wall, uh, electrical socket, basically. Um, we contacted the manufacturer. We told him about it. We actually even provided uh, a patch for it. And he was like, okay, this is all nice. Thank you for contacting us. But there is no way that we can roll out the update. And we were like, why? Because we have no update mechanism. Excuse me? So how do you? How would... How would you update this now that you have the patch? Well, the user has to manually, you know, get a USB cable connected to, to the laptop, download the zip file, and flash the device itself. Really? <laughs> wow. <laughs> so you run into all these uh, scenarios in which most IoT devices weren't even designed by default to accept updates, not even security updates, but updates by design. I, I think that was really common a couple of years ago. Christian, do you think it's, that's getting better in the space? In other words, we're getting more IoT smart devices that have that ability to update or they're at least taking some protection? Or are we in the same boat we were a couple years ago? It depends on the scope of the device, right? If I'm asking a consumer to pay $10 to have something be plugged into a wall, chances are the update mechanism is non-existent and won't be getting better for the foreseeable future. But if I've paid maybe north of $50 for an IoT device, chances are it has some type of Wi-Fi or other mechanism where it is regularly getting connected on the internet. And so I think one of the common arguments you would hear from an IoT vendor is, well, it's connected locally, but it's not really going out to the internet. So the vulnerability is, you know, within your network. It's it's not something that can be a method of privilege escalation or a method of compromise in and of itself. Um, and so there's going to be a conflict for quite some time that as IoT 
kind of eats up and consumes the market, especially at the lower end where it's like five, 10, $15 gadgets. Those are your most likely gadgets to be a persistent problem um, to secure and get a regular update cadence on. And, and I have a counter, uh, counter argument, argument for the manufacturer that says, you know, it's connected to your local Wi-Fi network. That's not a problem. Well, uh, we also found um, a, a certain type of attack in which it's called a proximity attack. You know, whenever you try to um, connect your device to the IoT device, basically you're allowing it to connect through your mobile phone to the Wi-Fi network. But if somebody's within proximity, he can force a repairing between the phone and the uh, the IoT device, and that's when when you do the again the pairing the the setup, you usually have to input your Wi-Fi username and password, and that and if somebody's doing this kind of proximity attack, they will absolutely one hundred percent of the time get your Wi-Fi password and Wi-Fi credentials, and they can connect to your internal Wi-Fi network. So you know that's not really an argument saying that it's a proximity attack and it's not connected to the internet. So it works. But the biggest problem, uh, if uh, if I may, now in the context that everybody's just you know, working from home, it, just look at us right now. We're working from home, for example, mm-hmm. um, is that uh, um, a lot of CIOs and CISOs actually believe that these vulnerable IoT devices can be um, can be or can pose a security risk for the organization. And actually, uh, I think I, I read a survey just a couple of days ago that about 50% of, IO, of CIOs and CISOs believe that um, employees owning vulnerable IoT devices could be a potential liability for the corporate infrastructure. You know, if in case somebody hacks into those, compromises their Wi-Fi uh, network, and then pivots through their uh, work laptop into the corporate infrastructure. You know, it's a it's a wild scenario, but we've seen it. We've seen it happen. And I've got another story about that. If you <laughs> if you're interested in, in learning yeah, about it, go go ahead and go ahead and say it. Uh, okay, so uh, uh, I think it was early early March or April. We found an interesting attack. Basically, um, a client of ours actually called in and said, "Hey, um, I've got Bitdefender installed, and I got infected." You can imagine the surprise in the support guys. It's like, okay, so run us through the incident. What happened? So we can fix the problem. He was like, look, I got, a, I got an email from one of my friends. Uh, uh, it had an attachment. Bitdefender said it's infected. You know, it's one of my friends. Why would Bitdefender infect, uh, would block a file that's from one of my friends? So I disabled the application and then I ran the, uh, the file. All of a sudden it was infected. And I tried to boot up Bit, the, the Bitdefender again. And what do you know? It couldn't disinfect my computer. I'm like, sir, security doesn't work like that. <laughs> you know, sometimes, yeah. you know, the, the biggest problem is between, uh, you know, the chair and the keyboard. And um, in the work from home context, uh, we got another incident in which uh, users, uh, users actually called us in saying that Bitdefender blocked uh, Amazon.com uh, and other, you know, GitHub and other uh, popular websites like that. As it turns out, um, they apparently installed a piece of malware that hijacked their router's DNS uh, settings. Hmm. So whenever they visited, uh, they typed in Amazon.com, you know, the DNS settings will, will actually redirect them to an attacker-controlled IP address. And they would get a pop-up saying, if you want to learn more about uh, the coronavirus outbreak, download this application from the World Health Organization. Bitdefender blocked that application. They were like, why would Bitdefender block an application from the World Health Organization? <laughs> But it turns out the DNS settings on their router were were, uh, were altered. So this is another example where um, a work from home scenario can potentially cause a security risk for an organization. Imagine you know bad guys having access to your router. 
Yeah, I, I spent when we came home, I spent a bunch of time. Well, I'm here right now all the time. So I spent a bunch of time kind of looking at the network and, you know, getting some pieces pulled together. Like, what am I doing? How is it set up? How can I monitor it? How can I keep track of it? The the bid defender box for the for I think I, I pay hundred dollars a year to have uh, to access to it and it comes with an unlimited number of antivirus and uh, uh, I think internet security or whatever the product total is. security total security yeah, I think internet security is the competitor um, and um, but if the box is protecting me why do I need the antivirus right I mean if I if I've got a box on the front end and it's smart and doing some things do do I really need the antivirus. Uh, the short answer is yes, and here comes the long answer. Yeah. Um, IoT devices, you know, don't traditionally support um, uh, uh, security clients, so the, their operating system do, don't doesn't allow you to have a client in within within it with, uh, within the thermostat, for example. But there are a huge number of uh, threats out there that are designed specifically for iOS, for Mac, for uh, for Android. And, uh, you know, for Windows operating system, there are about AV comparatives or AV test has a list of about 1 billion. I mean, it estimates there are about a billion pieces of malware out there just running around the Internet. So for these um, mature operating systems, you know, Windows, Mac and so on, you need um, a lot more protection because you use them for business purposes. You use them for personal purposes. You download apps, you install applications. They're they're far more complex from an operating system perspective. So that's why you need something locally deployed on that machine for for the rest you know those iot devices those, those smart devices that connect to the internet uh network security capable solution is the answer you know that that that's the only way that you can secure them it, it doesn't make sense to build security agents for each individual operating system you know that, that these uh, iot devices have and we have to say that uh, let's just say it as it is the the uh, the operating system market is really fragmented when it comes to IoT devices. There's no really no standard, not even for security or you know best practices. Actually, yeah. Christian, would you add anything to that? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's pretty evident is even when you have such a largely fragmented mobile device industry where everyone is picking, you know, Android versus Apple. And then on top of that, everyone is on their own version of the operating system. So you might be hesitant to go roll into the trailblazing iOS 14, or you might be hesitant to get that latest patch from Google. Um, you now have this bifurcated attack surface where it doesn't matter necessarily that you compromised um, uh, or, or you you responded to a, a given compromise against a version of a phone because chances are 80% of the people still haven't updated. Um, and so having something else that's keeping that in check when you're making choices as the consumer about what new features you do and don't want, I think that's pretty important. Um, a really good example is when the COVID-19 kind of got in full swing. Both Apple and Google started moving really fast on this contact tracing. Oops, hold on. Tap your mic for me. I just I just lost. There we go. Keep going. And until they were yeah. able to do any type of public policy position around it to get folks to see like here's how we here's how we've anonymized your data. Here's exactly how the Bluetooth radio is or isn't talking and using your device. Until all of that came out, um, 
there were a lot of folks who probably looked at that, saw that in their update and was like, nope, I'm not going to that release. I'm going to wait it out. And then, you know, interestingly enough, even though there was no problems with the original version of it, they ended up redoing the implementation and getting it cleaner. And it was like only two to three months before the next major version of contract tracing uh, contact tracing showed up. And so it just gives you a really good example how it's not always about um, the phobia of upgrading so much as it is consumers actually making decisions about what they do and don't want on their device. Unfortunately, um, that also places an expectation on the consumer that they're fully aware of what vulnerabilities may exist on the particular version that they're at. And it's not like if I'm on my Apple phone and I want to go to my next point release, I don't get to choose some release between where I'm at currently and what the most recent version is. No, like Apple's only going to give you the latest thing that's available from upstream. There's no incremental. I want to inch my way towards the top of the mountain. And I think that in and of itself is one of the big reasons why for a lot of people, it's all or nothing. I either am, I'm either patched to the latest version and I'm secure because we don't know what the vulnerabilities are yet in that version, um, or I'm several iterations behind and I'm probably exposed to either minor, major or minor vulnerabilities. Leave you one of the early, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, antivirus solutions tended to be bulky, heavy, you know, CPU intensive, um, RAM intensive. Like they, they, there was a big concern. They get, they just got, they got bloated. How is Bitdefender working with working on the PC or on the Mac or on the phone? How are you guys working to make sure those are kind of light in the background? They're doing their job. They're powerful, but they're still doing their job. How are you guys doing that? Because I run Bitdefender on a lot of the boxes now, and it seems I it seems to stay out of the way for me. Uh, okay, so th this is actually an issue that it's not just Bitdefender that tackled, you know, everybody in the security industry had the same problem uh, 15 years ago, 15, 20 years ago. Um, well, a lot of, a lot have, a lot has changed actually. For example, if 10, 15 years ago, you relied on signature detections, basically you had to have a fingerprint, if you will, for each malicious file and you basically ran it against a database, uh, that took time. It was, you know, it, it, it involved a lot of operations on your disk, for example. Uh, fortunately, we've stumbled across machine learning <laughs> that helped a lot. Uh, for example, we've uh, managed to create a machine learning model. Uh, basically, machine learning, if, for those of us, I, I'm pretty sure that everybody knows what machine learning is. But uh, basically, we've managed to create a model that was uh, that had about 99 uh, 99 so three nines, um, confidence rate that it can detect a specific family of ransomware. You know, it didn't matter if the sample was known or unknown. So a single model that was about one, key, one KB, one kilobyte in size, was capable of detecting an entire ransomware family. And that says a lot about performance, for example. Mm -hmm. So tweaks like that have been constantly made in terms of um, how to spot malware, you know, how to uh, rapidly identify unknown samples. So that's, that's one side of the story. Uh, and the other side of the story is that, you know, um, uh, to our benefit, hardware improved as well. So <laughs> I don't see a lot of people using, relying old HD on old HDDs. Most, uh, most uh, current generation laptops usually have SDDs, which does a lot in terms of performance. It allows you to do a lot more stuff.
Well, that, that new hardware has not always meant that uh, software has been more efficient or has run better, oh, right? I mean, as it was kind of an arms race for a while. We'd get better hardware. They do add more into the into the you know software. We'd add more. If you if you look at the antivirus, I mean, now in InBit Defender and the antivirus product that we have in the internet suite that I have, it's got a lot of capabilities other than just antivirus, right? It'll mm-hmm. notify me if my microphone gets <clears> accessed. It'll notify me if my camera gets ass- accessed. I have I have the ability to create a vault of information that's kind of locked up with a with a password, right? I've got some I've got more and more capabilities. So it's but however, it runs running on this box right here, and I don't seem to have any problems with it. So. Plus, we need to consider that most of these technologies are now cloud based, so nothing actually uh, is fully uh, deployed on your machine. You don't see scanning engines uh, deployed on machines, or so even anti spam solutions don't necessarily use uh, or have. Uh, OCR scanning engines deployed locally. They simply use metadata, for example. They just trip the content apart for Im- from images, from the body of the email, and do everything. The magic always happens in the cloud. So that's one, one reason why performance has improved uh, so much over the years. Um, and yes, uh, the fact that you now have so many features isn't necessarily because we wanted to give you so many features, <laughs> but because you know there's been a lot of... Um, attempts from bad guys, if you will, cyber criminals to exploit all of these sensors that come attached to the device that you're buying, whether it's a smartphone, whether it's a tablet or a laptop device. If you think about it, uh, uh, your smartphone is actually your own little spy and you keep it with you at all times when you sleep, when you go to work, when you're in your car, when you go to the bathroom and everywhere. So there are instances when you know a piece of malware like that compromising your device can jeopardize more than just the, the private the data that you have on the device, but also uh, your privacy. In oh, go ahead, Christian. I, I was going to ask. You know, one of the things I heard in that statement is is the evolution of how cloud computing, in particular, has evolved the ability to perform this type of detection, particularly with machine learning. With respect to both the Bitdefender box and the antivirus product that can be installed on device, how much is um, Bitdefender pushing as a service, pushing data to those devices and then having the devices perform the analytic and the detection versus having consumer data go to a Bitdefender cloud environment in order to be analyzed and make some type of determination? That is the biggest concern that everybody has when it comes to cloud computing. Nobody actually, I mean, they all fear that maybe there's too much information being sent to the cloud that's being processed that could somehow expose private information. Well, uh, the good part is, and the best part is, that we are completely compliant on the one side with every legislation, regulation, and GDPR, and uh, both legislation in the US, Europe, and Asia, everywhere. Uh, But, um, and, you know, if, we're talking about security experts. We're, tar- we're talking about the security industry. These guys are really tech savvy. And if they want to pick your part, your products, your technologies, and the way you you do stuff, they will, and they will track you down if you do something suspicious. So, uh, in regards to that, nothing like that ever happens. So that means we're doing a good job uh, in terms of protecting that. Uh, in terms of how and what type of information is usually offloaded, well, um, nothing that's being sent to the cloud is uh, or contains information that could privately or could potentially identify you as an individual. I mean, it's all anonymized in the sense that even a file, if I haven't seen it before, I will not upload that file to the cloud. I will simply get a fingerprint of that file that tells me how um, it will tell me the, the, the distribution, if you will, 
of the data within that file. So I would know in case I spot something similar that, you know, it's a fingerprint that I've seen somewhere else before, but I, I do not need to know the contents of that file. And that's how usually uh, these algorithms work. Uh, for example, look at, um, look at, let's take anti-spam solutions, for example, right? You, you've got an anti-spam client, you, uh, you, sorry, you've got an email client installed in your computer, you got Thunder, uh, Thunderbird, for example. Um, whenever an email reaches your inbox, a, a unique fingerprint for that email is sent to the cat. And that fingerprint contains, um, it does a little bit of local processing to strip out any information. And it does stuff like it parses out content that could be uh, sensitive, you know, like name, phone numbers and stuff like that. It parses out uh, email addresses from and to. It parses out IP addresses from and to. It will look at whether or not there are attachment, but it will not forward the attachment. It will just get a fingerprint of that attachment, you know, the type of file uh, and stuff like that. And most of these algorithms usually do this locally and uh, and then they just broadcast that information to the cloud. And we have to remember that that broadcast needs to be short because the bandwidth sometimes doesn't support a lot of information. So, so yeah, all of this is optimized. All of this is done with privacy in mind. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about how the performance um, trade-off exists when, uh, let, let's say, the box is trying to make some type of rendering about defending the network? How long is the delay between when a potential, a potential malicious activity has taken place, the analysis that Bitdefender performs off-prem, and the actual action or change to the network that the box enacts at the site once it's been analyzed? Sure. So <clears throat> I mentioned earlier that it's all about machine learning models and a model can be <clears throat> less than a kilobyte in size sometimes and can can uh, accurately statistically detect <laughs> a threat in just like that, a wide range of threats. So that's that's why, you know, the the performance penalty on the network is usually minimal because you don't you don't you don't just do a, a network uh, capture. You don't just capture package. You just look at, you just fingerprint them. And if you, if the uh, the model actually says that there's a 99.99 probability that this header for this packet um, is similar to something that I've seen and looks like an SMB exit, for example, <clears throat> then that uh, you know the the following packets will be discarded. That means that it's uh, it's something. Uh, that's trying to exploit the SMB vulnerability at the at the network level. So that's how it's work. It it usually works, and that's why performance isn't really hindered. If you will, you don't see a lot of the uh, uh, bottlenecks on your network traffic. It's kind of like with VPN, for example. You know, VPN solutions nowadays uh, have been optimized. You know, for <clears throat> for um, supporting a lot of throughput. Even our own solution, for example, for iOS. Uh, we released an update, I think a couple of months back or a month back, where we improved efficiency by about 25% because people said, they, they noticed, actually it was a perceived uh, more of a uh, observation that um, there were bottlenecks on their mobile traffic. And then we did our best to you know, eliminate that performance penalty. <clears throat> Maybe a good opportunity to show. So if you're listening to the audio only, you might want to come over to video, but this is kind of my Bitdefender dashboard. You can see the boxes installed on the very top and then the machines that are associated with it. Um, the, the interesting thing is over uh, over to the right side is in the notification sections. You can kind of see, I actually had a little uh, a little Kingston device from a couple years ago that was both a Wi-Fi. You could take it, plug it into a hotel and it would make a hotspot for you. So this was maybe five or six years ago and that was kind of important today. You know, you don't really need it, but... I was monkeying around with it last night, and it actually, when I attach it to the network, 
it scanned it for me right away. So as soon as it, the network hit it, it scanned it. It said there's no vulnerabilities, which I found kind of amazing that there was no vulnerabilities in this old device. Uh, but it kind of worked. And then you can kind of see, oh, two weeks or so, two or so ago, I ran that studio, that studio box that it's showing two threats were blocked on the studio core i7. That's this box right here um, attached to it and it and it records it there. Gives me some some level of protection, right? I get some notification if sometimes I'll be going through emails and a spam email will have something and even this is online, not even a client. I'm going through my on, online emails and I'm showing the content right of the email that's popping up. So it's it's doing um, it's it's at least showing it to me and I'll immediately get a notification saying we blocked that. If it shows up, we blocked that. Um, and, I imagine and, that's happening at the local level, right? That's not the box blocking it, or or maybe it is. I, I, I don't know. It is. It is because there's device fingerprinting, and, and it, it does that. I mean, it knows uh, when it scans for. I mean, whenever you plug in a device in your network, and the box is securing that network, uh, that device automatically transmits a couple of, some data packets to the box, you know, in order to send out its identity, if you will. And besides its identity, it also says, hey, I'm running this type of software. Uh, it's, it has this build. It has this hardware and stuff like that. And based on that, basically, we can map it to whatever we know about that device and that uh, what's the most recent version of software for that device. It, it, it's a little bit of comparison. So that's why it will give you the heads up. Uh, but judging from the, uh, the the dashboard that you have and the number of devices, we're pretty much on par with what we discussed earlier, that you're you have tons of IoT devices, devices connected to the internet, and you're basically turning into your own system administrator. Uh, so this is uh, this is a nice feature to have that you can see yeah. and manage all your devices. Yeah. Well, and you can you can see on the oh six down it says box has blocked the spam attempt on this mm -hmm. URL, so we can see that is definitely. Hope I'm I'm hope I'm not giving anything away here. I think I'm okay. <laughs> I looked at it in advance. There's do you no have any Do you have any uh, smart home assistants? Well, I have uh, both the, the the Google and the the Amazon device. Well, this is interesting because um, there were a couple of instances, I think last year in which a third party, uh, I think it was for an Apple assistant uh, for the Siri, uh, the Siri thing, a couple of third party um, uh, Siri developers for Apple sometimes gained access to 30 bit, uh, 30 second sound bits from uh, their assistant. And that was a, that was a major uh, bummer. Uh, so we decided at some point to come up with a feature that will allow you to silence your smart home assistant if you want, uh, if you want privacy. And you're worried about sometimes triggering, triggering it and you know, sending uh, chunks of conversations to somebody else. So you can, you can try it out, you can have that. I think it's under the activity, uh, activity tab. So try it, try it out. Yeah, there's a lot in there. There's a there's a lot to work with when you've got the the app installed uh, on your PC. Let's transition a little bit. Talk about VPN because when you install the app, you get access to the VPN. It's there and available. I think there's a free tier. I actually purchased the 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 standard VPN, which I think is relatively inexpensive. If I was a really good podcaster, I would have had all those prices out. But check your local price, right? As it is, it was. Very affordable, I think, on an annual basis. I think I maybe paid thirty dollars or something like that a year for the VPN access. How how important? And I'll ask you this question: Should I have that VPN turned on all the time? I mean, at this point, <clears throat> should I just be running the VPN twenty four seven, or is that still kind of only when I'm in a coffee shop or I'm on the road or not connected to anything? What's your advice? On that? 
I, I guess it depends on the, um, well, to make a joke about it, it depends on your level of paranoia. <laughs> so if you trust your home network, basically, if you've done uh, your security uh, audit and you know that everything's safe and secure, then you probably don't need it at home. So that that's that's safe. That's okay. Unless you want to do some shady activities and connect to some, uh, you know, some dubious websites and you want to hide your traffic. I'm kidding. <laughs> but VPN is always a nice option. Maybe for, I am. No, <laughs> maybe you are. I wouldn't judge, you know. <laughs> Christian's um, like, I'm leaving now. <laughs> where is this conversation I'm going? The exit <laughs> yeah. uh, but usually VPN is a solution for uh, when you're traveling, uh, traveling or when you want uh, more privacy when browsing, for example, or when you want to access uh, geo-restricted content. Um, so when you're traveling and you don't, uh, you don't know how the Wi-Fi setup is at your hotel or you're working from home and you're working from a coffee shop, because let's face it, you're not working from home really. So that's when you actually need a VPN because, you know, there's no, whenever you have no control over the network, you don't know who set up the network or who's controlling the router. There's also the privacy angle, for example, whenever you fear that trackers might track you more. Uh, because you're visiting their websites and you want to limit the amount of information they collect about you, your behavior, your the way you jump from one uh, website to, to another or your shopping habits and stuff like that or the type of content that you read. And that's usually um, uh, why most people uh, turn to VPN solutions. Uh, plus, there's also the fact that um, uh, VPN solutions, again, can restrict geolocated, uh, geo-restricted can unrestrict geo-locked uh, uh, content. Uh, so it depends pretty much on what your focus is. <laughs> pretty easy uh, showing on, on, the, on the video or showing kind of just the connection, the B VPN connection. And literally, I just bring up the application, hit connect. I've got some options to choose the location or have it auto choose for me. Oh, I'm clicking on the wrong thing. There we go. Mm -hmm. I can choose the location and have that um, uh, select that area you were talking about maybe accessing content from another region where you would normally have access to. Um, I find it handy. I don't probably use it as much as I should. Christian, let me pose the same question to you. Should I just have it on all the time or, or is it okay if I just run it uh, whenever I feel like I need it? Yeah, for me, it's a bit purpose driven. I always like to make sure that I am not artificially constraining my bandwidth, which is something that a, a common VPN solution can always put you at risk for, especially if there's congestion on a particular server. Um, so, so it depends. Like if, if I'm, for example, a video gamer, there's no way I want a VPN on. Um, I want as low latency as possible. I want to be getting all of the clicks in before everyone else. Um, if I'm doing average web browsing surfing and it's predominantly text and image, then yeah, I can probably leave the VPN on and I'm not going to really notice any substantive performance impact. And I will give you another example of when you need VPNs. Uh, for example, um, let's say you're doing online shopping from your mobile device and uh, you've just been hit with an email with an amazing discount. And on mobile devices, sometimes you may not have a security solution. Let's take iOS, for example. You don't have a native built-in uh, security solution. So a VPN, if you fire that up, it will also be able to tell you whether or not the, the website you're visiting, the website you're about to input your credit card into, is actually legitimate or not. Because, you know, the the, the solution, the Bitdefender VPN, will actually filter out URLs that are malicious, fraudulent, or uh, scammy, if you will. <laughs> so regardless of where you get that email, whether you click on it from 
Facebook or uh, uh, WhatsApp or w- any other applications that you have installed, it will automatically um, vet it and it will automatically tell you whether or not it's uh, it's secure. So it's kind of like having a security solution for URLs if you're not sure what you're clicking. Okay, well, that didn't totally clear it up for me. I, I'm going to, I guess I'm going to use VPN in, in certain situations when I want to know that I'm, I'm anonymous or I'm, I'm being, I want to be more secure than I would before. It does sound like it may stop some spammy type things for me when, when I'm doing certain, uh, if I'm shopping or I'm out available. So it's super, super, super handy. And it's great that it just came again. It, it kind of came with the family of products that I had and made it really, really easy on the phone, both on the phone and on the desktop. And I don't, I almost never turn it on here in the network because I have the box. So I'm kind of like, now that doesn't, the box doesn't make me anonymous, right? So that's different. If I if I needed to be, I could using the VPN, but uh, a pretty good solution. Am I, I'm assuming, do you guys do that in-house or is that outsourced to, to somebody else to, to provide that? Or do you know? Um, I think, um, uh, not exactly sure, but I, I, I don't want to talk stuff uh, that's yeah, not true, but, but I think at some point it was outsourced, but I think the, the client version for the iOS, uh, for the iOS application is actually something that's internally developed. So it's patented. Okay. Um, let's talk a little, uh, we, we got a few minutes here left. Let's, we kind of covered a bunch of cybersecurity <laughs> topics as we've kind of been rolling through this, but. But I, w- I want to ask you, what do you today, like what keeps you awake at night as you think about your job and what you're doing? What's the biggest problem that you're trying to tackle right now? Oh, for work or, yeah. uh, you know, threats and trends in general? Yeah. No, I, I mean, like, so for your job, for what you do as a, as a researcher, what oh. do you see that's scary enough that you're kind of like, oh, boy, we better get a handle on this thing. Any, anything oh. new or what's keeping you awake at night? Well, the lack of time for one, <laughs> there's so much to do and not enough time to do it in. But, yeah. um, well, uh, well, this is something interesting that, uh, I, I mentioned before we started the show that we've seen, um, an interesting trend, which is, you know, how APT hackers used to be state sponsored. And it was fun times because you could point, you can, you know, say these guys belong to Russia. These guys belong to Israel. These guys belong to China. Well, it seems those times will be gone pretty soon because uh, we recently found that APT hackers can be for hire. So it's kind of like APTs as a service. So we found, uh, we basically ran an investigation on an architectural and video production company, so which is weird. And the guys that breached them, the APT hackers, and we know that they're APT hackers because of the tactics and techniques that they use. For example, they use the zero day vulnerability in, um, uh, Autodesk 3ds Max, so it's a video production software that uh, you know uh, software uh, architectural companies use, and to use a zero-day vulnerability in a software for a company that you know doesn't present any financial value, if you think about it, or isn't really connected to government or strategic value in in any way, that that was weird. Uh, so our only conclusion was that whoever uh, whoever ran the attack was not only skilled, motivated, and very sharp at what they did, so they had the, the, the tactics and techniques, the resources, and the brain power to find a vulnerability, which, by the way, the vulnerability was actually disclosed just days after uh, before we published the report. So we didn't even know that they used a zero-day vulnerability uh, just you know, uh, 
just two or three days before we published the report. So, um, so yeah, so this could, this is actually something that will give us a lot of, um, a lot of sleepless nights because it will not only make attribution more difficult, but it means that um, the tools that they use will probably become more uh, commoditized. So um, the tactics that they de employ whenever they're, they want to target, you know, uh, companies from verticals that were, weren't even targeted in the past. So if government was targeted and financial, you're, we're going to be seeing attacks on, uh, I don't know, uh, architectural design company for one, or you can see construction companies and stuff like that. And uh, it's going to make our job a lot more difficult when investigating these, atta these attacks. So yeah, it's we, Nebraska yeah. Medicine, one of our largest um, healthcare providers here in the state of Nebraska, just had a ransomware attack this last weekend. And yeah. so, you know, it's it, Christian, let me ask you that same question different, or what would you add to it? What's when you think about what's coming, and by the way, as you're thinking about that question, Christian, I love that when you said the word motivated, you said that with kind of with with emphasis. They're they're not you know just have the ability, but they're motivated differently. You know, state run versus for profit. That's kind of what I'd call them in that in that right where they're doing it on their own. That the motivations are there for sure, Christian. What what else would you add to that? I think for me, it goes back to a bit of an old idea, which is that we are building security on top of inherently insecure design pattern of the internet. So all of these things that we're coming out with and innovating are basically building upon a, a foundational set of technologies that weren't necessarily thought with security as the like forefront of, of the architecture. And so when I see the next big vulnerability to disclosure, the next big CVE, the one the one that currently has me just eyes wide open right now is the um, Active Directory privilege escalation that requires no login or otherwise. It was rated as a 10, basically full privileged access to run around as a privileged user within a domain, like really scary stuff. Um, and, it's, and it's something that from the looks of it doesn't, is concerning enough that they weren't willing to disclose the tools to it uh, to reproduce the vulnerability until things had been largely patched. And so when you see things like that time and time again across a lot of different companies, it speaks to this broader notion that we are still operating from a foundational pyramid that has cracks all over the foundation and we're just patching them as quickly as we can. And while there is and I'm not saying that true innovation and security isn't happening. Like, of course it is, but ultimately like, are we going to miss one or two of these big cracks that, you know, Oop, tap that mic again for me. One or two of these cracks. We'll, we'll get it. We'll get you back. Try it again. Now, shoot. Speaking of uh, cybersecurity <laughs> issues. No, that... I was just about to say that we have a saying around the office that uh, if you have three lines of code, one of them probably is a vulnerability that's about to be exploited. <laughs> so, so yeah, whenever you have code, you're dealing with vulnerabilities. Now. Yeah, well, to Christian's point, um, I, I think, you know, we, we, have, we have 30 or 40 years of, of this, this foundation that we're working off of that is inherently flawed. And, you know, both of you in a, in a lot of ways are building on top of that. But then you find these huge cracks that you just kind of sink through. Right, Christian? Yeah. yeah. You know, I think it's, it's one of these watershed moments we're going to have at some point where 
we have to rewrite or start from the scratch, right? Like as a software engineer, there are two paradigms of how I can go about a refactor. One is I can take an existing code base or an existing set of stuff and I can refactor and, and re-architect and peel the onion and do it all within the same system. Or I can say, this thing is so hopelessly lost, I'm going to turn my efforts on a laying a new foundation, build a new version two of this server, stand it up, launch it, and weigh my traffic away from the cruddy implementation to the new implementation, and then just turn that old thing off. Now, obviously doing that with something as foundational as the internet, probably not feasible, right? We have mm -hmm. millions, billions of routers and switches and fiber, and just the whole thing is not something that overnight you're going to go on to a version two. But I do hope that, you know, once you get above electrons and physical access being the, the bane of all security problems, um, that some of those other lower level based protocols that we have are heavily reliant on, we do eventually come up with ways to go from a V1 to a V2 where we switch that off. Um, and you can see how challenging this is just with really basic stuff, right? Like how hard has it been for us to switch off IPv4 and go to only IPv6? Uh, we've been trying this mm -hmm. for almost a decade now, and maybe we have 25% user adoption, right? So something even more foundational than that, where it's like, it's no longer Ethernet frame, it's some new type of packet technology. And here's the security features built into each frame that you send. Um, until we get to that level of granularity in the lower level of the foundation, I suspect that we're going to continue to see these types of things emerge. Leave you in just the few minutes we have left. Anything as we think about the future at Bitdefender? Anything you're excited about? Anything as as you guys look ahead? And we're not looking for state secrets or any of those kinds of things or exclusives on this. Just as you think about the future, what's going on at Bitdefender? What what do you get excited about as far as uh, what the company's what's what's coming up for the company? Um, right, tough questions because uh, we're working on such a lot of things. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay, so okay, let's. Let's boil it down to one category. You mentioned we talked a lot about IOTs. Um, well, the box is an amazing product, for example. It, it does great stuff uh, for you. I think one of the ways that we're going to and we're trying to, uh, the direction we're trying to head to is the fact that we're trying to build a security, uh, an IOT security platform, which basically means that any router vendor, any router manufacturer can pretty much bundle the features, the security features that we have in the box into their own router. So that way you wouldn't be dependent of buying a box just from Bitdefender. Any router that you would buy would inherently come in with built-in security features that are just you know customizable and can protect you against anything. So I guess that would be on my, at least on this level, on this particular topic, IoT topic, that would be the next, the next best thing. Any any uh, aspirations for a V3 uh, for, for a new box coming out? Anything you can say? Uh, I cannot say, but I, I, I can say that uh, since I mentioned the platform, uh, Netgear has already bundled some of the security features uh, from the Bitdefender box into their own Netgear uh, uh, products. I, I don't remember the name of the product they have, but Netgear already has uh, spearheaded these efforts. So Good. It's not Good. Yeah, and I just saw a competitor's box come out on a D-Link. Uh, it starts with an M, that, that company. And uh, and so I'm seeing more of these coming out. It's I'm I'm actually surprised this hasn't caught on more because config even configuring your basic router for most people 
is just a nightmare. It just doesn't make any sense in, in a lot of cases. We got to get, uh, we have to make it easier. Um, so I, I think we're going to continue to see appliance devices like this come out that that um, will make it easier for the average user be able to come in and say, okay, this makes sense and this makes sense. But as soon as you start talking about IPs, like the average consumer just kind of loses their mind, right? They're just kind of like, nah, I don't want to, I, I don't want to do this anymore. So, um, leave you. Thanks for taking the time today. Well, if, if we ask you in a little bit to come back and talk maybe more about cybersecurity uh, from from that perspective, would you be willing to come back and join us? It would be abs- an absolute pleasure. So, thank you guys for having me today. Great. Hopefully, no. this was uh, interesting and enlightening. <laughs> uh, very, very much so. We want to thank you for coming on. Appreciate it.